The British are not in a good position uh, because they've gone from a situation where they were part of a coalition confronting a single adversary to now uh, they're essentially fighting by themselves with no European allies and they're engaged against two different uh, powerful adversaries, one in Northwest Europe and the Atlantic and the other one in the Mediterranean, which means the British are going to have to fight a two-front war assuming they want to, want to continue this contest. An excerpt from today's guest, who's written an expert account on the maritime struggle in the Mediterranean and the Middle East, 1940 to 1945. Author Brian Walter is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Welcome back. Before we get into the show, remember to click that follow button on the podcast. It helps more military history lovers find the program, and thank you very much. Today's guest is a retired Army officer from a combat arms branch with a Bachelor of Science degree in political science and international relations. He has been a student of the British military during the Second World War for more than 30 years. His book is called Blue Water War, Maritime Struggle in the Mediterranean and the Middle East, 1940 to 1945, and author Brian Walter joins us now. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you, sir. Before we get into the book, I know that you've been long a student of uh, British military history. What about their, you're an American, what about their history uh, has fascinated you? Well, that's a great question, because I, I, people find it very fascinating, the fact that I am an American, and yet I write about British history. They also think it's fascinating that uh, my background is that as a, of a retired Army officer, and yet I primarily, primarily write about uh, maritime activities. Uh, but uh, if you read my books, you'll see that I actually do qu- go quite a bit into the uh, concurrent ground campaigns that are also underway uh, during these various theaters. And I do that because, you know, the various campaigns were intertwined with each other. And uh, it doesn't really make sense to look at the maritime contest if you're not also looking at the concurrent ground operations that were underway and that this was feeding. Uh, With that said, to answer your question, uh, when I was in fourth grade, I came across the book about the Battle of Britain. And for whatever reason, that book was a life-changing event for me because I was just enthralled by the story of the struggle that the British people uh, under the, the leadership of Winston Churchill put forward against the Germans at this time. And I've been a student of the British military during World War II ever since. So some 50-odd years now. And, um, and uh, I continue to be that student. And getting to the book now, at the outset of the Second World War, who were the dominant powers in the Mediterranean and what were their capabilities? Sure. Um, you had three primary powers that were located in the Mediterranean at the beginning of this contest. Uh, the first of these was Italy, which is located in the central Mediterranean. Uh, then you had France, which, of course, borders the western part of the Mediterranean. And then the third was the United Kingdom, which has no direct contact with the Mediterranean area itself. But uh, the British had colonies and possessions there and actually controlled both access points to the Mediterranean in, in terms of the Strait of Gibraltar and um, the uh, Suez Canal. Um, World War II actually starts, of course, in September 1939 uh, in Northwest Europe uh, when Germany invades Poland and then uh, Britain and France declare war on Germany accordingly. Uh, Italy at this time is allied with the Germans but, but declines to get into the conflict. So for the first nine months of the war, there is no real combat in the Mediterranean area. 
This all changes in June of 1940, when uh, at this time the Germans have already launched their blitzkrieg campaign against the West. Uh, Holland and Belgium have fallen. France is in the process of collapsing. The British expeditionary force has been driven off the continent from Dunkirk. And um, the, the Italian dictator Mussolini feels that this is the right time for Italy to get into the war. So he declares war against France and Britain. Now, France, for all intents and purposes, is a non-entity then, uh, because, again, they, they will surrender 12 days after uh, this, this, this declaration of war. So the, the French forces really play no part in this. So it's essentially just the British against the Germans. Uh, excuse me, the, the British against the Italians. And in that regard, the British are not in a good position uh, because they've gone from a situation where they were part of a coalition confronting a single adversary to now uh, they're essentially fighting by themselves with no European allies and they're engaged against two different uh, powerful adversaries, one in Northwest Europe and the Atlantic and the other one in the Mediterranean, which means the British are going to have to fight a two-front war assuming they want to want to continue this contest. Um, and to add insult to injury, uh, the British forces that are, exist in the Mediterranean area are, are actually heavily outnumbered by their Italian counterparts. Um, now, the Royal Navy in total is a larger force than the Italian Navy, but the Royal Navy has global commitments and can only devote a portion of its strength in the Mediterranean, whereas uh, the Italians can put their entire naval force at play there. And as a result of this, the Italians uh, significantly outnumber the, uh, the British at the beginning of this contest. Altogether, the Italians possess or are in the process of bringing into their navy some 271 principal warships. This mm. includes uh, six battleships, one old armored cruiser, uh, seven heavy cruisers, 12 light cruisers, 69 tor- uh, excuse me, 61 destroyers, 69 torpedo boats, and 115 submarines. Now, against wow. this, the British Mediterranean fleet is uh, 41 vessels strong. Uh, it has four battleships, an aircraft carrier, nine light cruisers, 21 destroyers, and six submarines. So the British are outnumbered by a factor of about six to one. And, you know, in fairness, not all of these Italian ships were immediately ready for action. So maybe it's only really like four to one. But the British are still outnumbered. Uh, the situation is much the same with the ground forces, whereas the Italians have a total uh, strength in their army of about 1.6 million men uh, spread over 73 divisions. Uh, as well as about 300,000 uh, personnel in, in fascist militia units. Um, in Africa itself, the Italians have about 540,000 men. Against this, the British have 83,000 men in the Med- Middle East and the contested areas in Africa. So again, they're outnumbered by a factor of better than six to one. And the situation in the air is, is, is the most advantageous for the British in that they're only outnumbered about two to one. Uh, the Italians have 1,750 aircraft uh, in their air force, of which uh, 638 are actually in Africa or in the vicinity against uh, 368 British aircraft that are in the Middle East and in the Africa area. So again, a little less than a two-to-one uh, numerical advantage for the Italians in immediately aircraft uh, in the area in that regard. But overall, the British will start out this contest heavily outnumbered. I didn't realize it was that lopsided. It's it's very surprising to me. And to that point, in your study of the battles in the Mediterranean, were there any battles that surprised you as far as who emerged as the victor? Sure, sure, absolutely. I mean, it, that's one of the things that's great about writing about this theater of war is there are all kinds of uh, 
areas in this contest that have really gone underreported uh, or been overlooked by history. Um, and when you're talking about surprising outcomes in battle, I will stick with the theme I just started with. I think it's very interesting the way the, uh, the, the British are able to hold off the Italians at the beginning of this contest and very quickly turn the tables on them. Uh, the British start this contest definitely on the defensive, but they engage in a very aggressive defense, and that's true of all three of the British services. For instance, within hours of the declaration of war, the, the British Mediterranean fleet sorties out of Alexandria and does an offensive sweep in search of Allied, or excuse me, of, of uh, Italian shipping. Uh, at the same time, they also dispatch cruisers and destroyers to bombard Tobruk Harbor. Now, the bombardment goes off fine. The sweep isn't so successful. They don't actually encounter any Italian ships. And on their way back to Alexandria, uh, one, uh, an Italian submarine will torpedo and sink the British light cruiser Calypso in a, in a rare example of an Italian submarine success against the British. So it's a bit of an inauspicious start for them, but no way does this curb uh, the British aggressiveness that they will continue to uh, demonstrate. And for the next four months, they will continue to uh, conduct raids, uh, bombardments against Italian positions, uh, offensive actions anywhere they can do so, and they will fight a number of engagements against the Italians, both surface engagements and also activities of the, the uh, fleet air arm, uh, which I want to stress a little bit right now, which are very impressive, because during mm. this period, the fleet air arm only possesses no more than about two dozen swordfish torpedo bombers in the theater, and yet they're able to score some, some amazing results with this limited force. Uh, they carry out a number of raids. One raid in particular I think is impressive is in July of 1940. They, uh, they will attack uh, Tobruk Harbor with a grand total of just six swordfish torpedo bombers. And yet those six torpedo bombers will sink two Italian destroyers in a, in a merchant ship. And then a month later, they will attack Tobruk again with three swordfish torpedo bombers that will sink a, a submarine and a depot ship. So it's in a very uh, effective economy of force and, and use of the limited resources that they have. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, New York Times bestselling author Nathalia Holt will be here to talk about the female spies who built the CIA and change the future of espionage. So, you know, we see during World War II, the women played a very important role as intelligence officers in turning German intelligence spies to work for the Allies, and then having them feed information back to the Germans that was completely false, then sent torpedoes and U-boats completely the opposite direction of Allied troops. Another program you won't want to miss. And if you're enjoying this World War II episode, Check out our earlier program about Ronald Spears and his band of brothers with author Jared Frederick. One of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. You'll find the link to that show in this episode's description. Now let's return to the conversation. These fleet air arm raids tied with the activities of the surface warships during the first four months of the war will sink about two dozen uh, Italian principal warships, including Italian submarine losses, um, which again, against the overall size of the Italian Navy, 
isn't that substantial, but it's a steady stream of attrition that the British are attaining uh, for minimal loss to themselves. And the real purpose of this is to keep the Italians off balance. And then as um, resources finally start arriving into the theater, the British are able to take even uh, more substantial offensive action. Uh, the best classic example of this is in November, uh, the fleet will carry out Operation Judgment, which is a carrier air attack against the uh, Italian naval base at Toronto. Mm. Uh, this has often been uh, compared to Pearl Harbor. In this regard, I think it's a bit uh, you know, of exaggeration because the Japanese will attack Pearl Harbor with six aircraft carriers and 350 strike aircraft. In this case, the British have a single aircraft carrier that being HMS Illustrious, and again, they attack Toronto with a grand total of 21 swordfish torpedo bombers. But those 21 aircraft are able to sink an Italian battleship that will end up being a total loss and temporarily disable two others that will be out of service for four months and seven months, respectively. So this action alters the balance of power in the Mediterranean, and it, um, it, it clearly demonstrates that the British now are on the ascendancy. A few, a few weeks after this, the, the British Army, which again has received some reinforcements, will be able to go on, onto the offensive in Egypt. They do so with a grand total of two divisions, and they're attacking an Italian army of ten divisions. So they're still outnumbered five to one, but they launch the offensive, and they rout the Italian Tenth Army. They uh, they will drive the Italians out of Egypt. They conquer Cyrenaica. Uh, they literally destroy the entire Italian 10th Army and take 130,000 prisoners, and the British do this for about 5,000 casualties. Then, as this wow. Operation Compass is winding down, they will launch a similar operation against Italian East Africa. Now, this campaign will last the longer, about 10 months, uh, from the end of January 1941 through the beginning of November of that year, uh, during which time... Again, two converging British forces, which are never more than five divisions strong, will conquer all of Italian East Africa. Uh, in the process of doing so, they will destroy an Italian force of 290,000 men, of which about 200,000 are taken prisoner, another 15,000 are killed, and the rest are primarily native troops that simply desert and disappear into the wilderness. Uh, mm -hmm. There's a considerable amount of naval fighting that is associated with this campaign, during which the Italians will lose uh, seven destroyers, two torpedo boats, uh, four submarines, and 43 merchant ships worth 255,000 tons. British losses for this entire campaign amount to about 6,000 combat casualties and no naval losses to speak of. So again, an extremely lopsided victory that the British score. And when you look at these actions on paper, there's no way the British should be able to do this, but obviously they do. And they very quickly right. turn the tide against the, the Italians to the extent that... Um, the Germans have to intervene into the contest starting in January of 1941. And, and going forward from there, you know, Germany then will increasingly become the dominant player in the Mediterranean and conditions will become much worse for the British. But this initial period of time when it is the British just against the Italians, the British very quickly will turn this against them and, and really win that portion of the war. As it progressed, bringing it up to September 1943, the Italians signed an armistice and left the conflict. Was that the end of the struggle in the maritime, maritime struggle in the Mediterranean? Well, you know, that would be a logical conclusion to draw, but in fact, that is not the case. Um, now, up to this point, you're looking 39 months into the war. The Italian navies lost 194 uh, principal warships. So against the original force they have, that is about 72% uh, of their original force. Uh, now, of course, since then, they've also added additional ships through construction into their navy. Um, 
as one of the stipulations of the armistice that brings about Italy's departure from the war, the Italians have to surrender their fleet to the Allies, which they dutifully do. Uh, eventually, a total of uh, 108 Italian ships will be uh, surrendered to the Allies. Uh, this includes five battleships, nine cruisers, 37 destroyers slash torpedo boats, and 14 submarines. Um, so a substantial force. Uh, and again, you would think between these two events, the 194 ships that they've lost up to this point and the 108 ships that are surrendered, that, that pretty much ends the contest. You would think that that would be the point that the contest would be over, but in fact it's not. The Germans will simply move in and take over. Uh, they literally go in and they take over Italy. And Italy will become another occupied country, uh, just like so many other countries in Europe. Uh, the Allies will then invade Italy, and for the next 20 months or the final 20 months of the war, you will see the uh, Allies combating the Germans for control over Italy, while the Italians are primarily bystanders to the activities that are going on within their own country. The same holds true for the Maritime War, is the, the Germans will come in and basically be able to seize a number of Italian ships. Now, I mentioned 108 uh, get away, but large numbers of Italian ships cannot get away. Um, and, and surrender to the Allies. These are, by and large, uh, ships that are non-operational at the time. Either they're undergoing repairs due to battle damage, or, uh, in many cases, they're new vessels that are under construction that haven't been completed. And the Germans will seize these vessels in the various ports and put many of them back into service now in the, in the German Navy. And eventually mm -hmm. about three dozen destroyers will be brought into the German Navy and used in the Mediterranean, as well as German U-boats and the Luftwaffe, which of course have been there since 1941. And these assets, the, acts, the Germans will be able to continue this maritime contest for the last 20 months of the war. Um, and just to give you an idea of the scale of the combat that will still continue after this point, uh, during this period, after the surrender of the, uh, the Italian fleet, the Allies will still lose 39 principal warships in the Mediterranean, and the Germans will lose 111. So there's obviously still substantial naval combat that takes place in the theater after the Italians bow out of the contest. Now, when the Americans entered the war and also obviously brought the Navy into the Mediterranean, how did they get along with the British? Were they rivals or were they comrades? How did they work together? Well, to the best of my knowledge, in terms of the maritime contest, there really isn't any type of dangerous rivalry, and, and, the, and the two forces actually cooperate quite well with each other. Now, the thing I should stipulate is that, of course, for the first two and a half years of the war, the Royal Navy is basically operating by themselves in the Mediterranean. Um, there is, right. you know, a, a rare example where in, in um, April and May of, of 1942, the American aircraft carrier WASP will carry out a couple ferry missions to ferry Spitfires to Malta. Um, but other than that, the United States Navy is not really involved in the Mediterranean theater. Now, that changes in November of 1942 uh, with the invasion of French North Africa, where the United States Navy becomes then a, uh, a substantial partner in this contest. But I still have to point out that the Royal Navy will still be the dominant player in this maritime contest in the Mediterranean theater for the remainder of the war. Uh, with the Americans, you know, being present, but but not the substantial, uh, you know, equal partners. Um, with that said, there is one exception to that, and that is the invasion of southern France, where the Americans will play the dominant role in that specific operation. American forces will provide a total of 59.4% of the, the vessels used during that invasion, compared to 356 for the British, and then the remaining 5% coming from uh, other allied nations, most notably France. 
But altogether, this is the one exception. And for the rest of the campaign, the British are still the dominant players. But to the extent the Americans are involved, and they are certainly involved, uh, the cooperation is good. Now, the one other thing I'll just quickly point out is, is even though American involvement with the Navy isn't that substantial during a lot of this period of time, uh, there's another major American player that is heavily involved in this maritime contest, and that's the United States Army Air Force, which, again, Mm. starting at the very end of 1942, will will uh, actually become a, a very significant nemesis to the Axis maritime forces in the region, being responsible for the destructions of large numbers of Axis, both merchant ships and warships. And there will be periods where the United States Army Air Force is actually sinking you know, more uh, Axis ships than the, all British assets are combined. So the United States Army Air Force actually does become a major player in this contest, in some respects even more so than the Navy is. Incredible. The book is called Blue Water War, The Maritime Struggle in the Mediterranean in the Middle East, 1940 to 1945. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for joining me. Next time, New York Times bestselling author Nathalia Holt will be here to talk about the female spies who built the CIA and changed the future of espionage. So, you know, we see during World War II, the women played a very important role as intelligence officers in turning German intelligence spies to work for the Allies and then having them feed information back to the Germans that was completely false, then sent torpedoes and U-boats completely the opposite direction of Allied troops. Another program you won't want to miss. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or a rating or just click the follow button. Be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.